Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Adam Andrews. Heidi, Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Good to be here. Good to be back. So we are here to discuss... We're just here to go further up and further in with... Ralph Moody's Little Britches. We're going to talk about chapters 11 through 16. If you don't have it labeled properly in your book, chapter 11 is uh, haying. And then chapter 16 is a good month with no school. So we will talk about... um, We're going to talk about those chapters here in a minute. Quickly though, Adam, anything you want to talk about? Just in general? just If you have one minute to talk about anything you want to talk about. (laughs) Uh, You put me on the spot. I can't think of a single thing. Although I'm glad... I'll tell you this. uh, I'm glad I'm not... I don't live in a place where you have to hay. (laughs) Well... Live at a time when you have to yeah. hay. I was going to say you probably there's probably plenty of haying done in, in the Pacific Northwest. Just don't have I to just, do it now. Yeah, a lot of this book is reminding me how grateful I am to live in the era and the location that I do. Hmm. Although, mm-hmm. I mean, the the you know his childhood is wonderful, and there's many there's glorious things about it, and all the important things are taken care of. But man, oh man, I sure do like modern conveniences, <laughs> like microphones and bathrooms and stuff. Yes. Right. Yeah. But not together. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> it's a false dichotomy. Um, uh, so Adam, before I turn it over to Heidi, what is up at the, the Center for Lit that you want to tell people about? Because you are, after all, the uh, Grand Poobah? What's the... the you're, in, you're the guy that's in charge over there at the Center for Lit. Yeah. Uh, things are going well. We're, we just opened up our early registration period for our online academy and are uh, telling everyone we can tell about that, giving big tuition discounts for kids that want to join our classes for the fall. Nice. And we've got classes in grades 5 through 12 uh, featuring the, the Center for Lit approach to literary discussion, Socratic discussion. And we've been having a great time with those for the last 10 years. This is our 10th, uh, 10th season going into online classes and we're mm-hmm. really, really enjoying it. So that's are the main you, thing. Are you teaching anything uh, new this year that you've never taught or maybe you haven't taught in a while before say that? Well, our, our elementary and, and junior high classes are on kind of a rotating book okay. list. So we actually uh, teach new titles uh, every, every other year or every third year in, in those classes. Okay. And then we, we tend to, um, to cycle one or two titles uh, in uh, as new ones in the high, at the high school level. Okay. As well, so we may be doing some Dostoevsky this year in the World mm. Lit class. Nice, and, nice. Uh, we're going to do um, uh, Leif Inger's "Peace Like a River" in the American Lit class. We don't do oh, that every year. That, that is a great book. I've never yeah, taught that one. book, but that that's 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 a great one. Yeah, we love it. That's on the so, uh, close reads shortlist for the future. Oh, is that right? Perfect. Yeah, it's it's a it's a favorite of ours over at Center for Lit. So yeah, online academy uh, early registration period is kind of the main news that I have to share. Centerforlit.com, I assume. Centerforlit.com, exactly. Heidi, what are you up to? Well, I'm getting ready to teach this webinar uh, over at the Circe Institute next week on the history of the Holy Grail. And I'm so excited about it. It is such a fascinating and mysterious story legend the development of the legend is really cool and not a lot of people know about it so i'm excited about that nice. um and then 
uh, also got to prepare another talk for the Circe Institute for the regional conference that's coming up in May, and that's going to be a really good one too. So, David, maybe you could tell us about that. Nah. <laughs> can find out online. Yeah. Well, to find out about that that webinar, people can just head over to our website or find it on social media. You know, if you go to the com page, you can click on events and it should show up there. The Informa. Region- we got that oh, yeah. coming out. Yeah, it's, yeah. ostensibly. Um, the the uh, We do have a regional conference coming up in May. And I think I've mentioned this before, but basically the theme is reliving the journey Um Re- recovering, recovering, reliving the journey, recovering the wonder. Yeah, it's just the idea that when you teach something, you often have to uh, go back to the beginning, or at least be empathetic enough with your students to be able to go back to where they are. Because as teachers, we often, you know, we know what we're talking about. So you have to figure out how do you get to the place where you are. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> how do yeah. you be able to empathize with the student who isn't there? So we're going to talk about that and a lot of ideas related to that. And that's in May. So if you would like to, uh, if you're in the Southeast or well, I guess if you're anywhere and you want to fly in, but especially if you're in the Southeast and you want to join us, that's uh, May 11th, I believe, uh, here in Charlotte or here in Concord, actually, pretty close to our offices. So uh, that's coming up. But yeah, all right, let's talk about, let's talk about this book. Enough chit chat. <laughs> Stop talking so long, guys. Okay, so <laughs> before we record, hit record, Adam said that he likes Two Dog. He wants to talk about Two Dog. And um, I, this brings up something that I was thinking about while I was sitting in the coffee shop reading recently. Because if you know anything about the Cersei Institute office, the no reading actually happens there because there's too many people talking. So I had to go to the coffee shop to get any reading done, where there was, again, more talking happening. Um, and as I was reading, I was thinking, about the sort of the difference, the different kind of scenes that keep keep popping up in this book. I mentioned last week how it's a little bit um, I don't episodic. I think was the word that I used, kind mm-hmm. of in the same way that Little House in the Prairie is sort of. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about how there are scenes that are that are very dramatic. You know, he he goes off in the woods and goes up into the mountains and hears the wolf howling and he goes to two dog and there's danger involved and things like that. And then there's these scenes where he's just sort of haying <laughs> and you know, it's this balance between the adventure uh, that is, you know, exploring or going off on some sort of journey that's very necessary trying to solve some problem. And then there's just the adventure that is life going on. And I was wondering if you found it to be, um, disorienting at all going back and forth between them because i was really wanting multiple chapters of this two dog thing oh i see because you said you like him and i like him too i like that whole scene and it felt like oh i'll wait i'll wait this whole this that was it it's just one chapter it's just 10 pages of him going up in the woods and facing his greatest fears and finding them and and then all of a sudden the horse is well again and then we just get to go back to going to auctions so adam so as someone who likes two dog and likes those scenes do you find yourself is do you find do you find it disorienting i guess is what i'm what i'm asking and i don't i don't i'm not asking this in a way that we should be critical i'm not asking us to be critical of ralph moody i'm just from a storytelling perspective i'm curious well the thing i liked about the the chapter that where he goes after two dog and and uh in search of help for his horse is that um Chapter twelve, if for people who are yeah, chapter twelve, the uh, the sense of danger that you mentioned is mm-hmm. um, yeah is palpable, yeah, and also the stakes, and also the sense yeah that super high stakes uh, adventure, and also his his foolishness and naivete and ignorance of 
those stakes and of the risks mm. that he's taking, mm. um, make it a wonderful, a delicious chapter in terms of tension and in terms of, of um, uh, the unknown, the anxiety that comes with the unknown. But um, the resolution that happens when he finally makes it into uh, Two Dogs Camp is really poignant and I think really effective. And this is one of the reasons that I like these characters, not just Two Dog, but also what's he called? Horse Thief Thompson that he lives with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we have a picture of them. The The last word we have from Mrs. Corcoran is that they're, um, you know, they're good for nothing thieves and not to be trusted. And uh, we don't necessarily put a lot of stock in what Mrs. Corcoran says, but there's a, there's an uncertainty at the back of our minds yeah. when young Ralph goes up into the middle of the mountains at night in search of these two people. Yeah. And so the, the tension of the situation and the fact that he's lost in the mountains and there's the wolf howling is compounded by the fact that who he's looking for is two people that we're not really sure he can trust. And so that tension reaches a fever pitch. And then, and then when he shows up uh, in the doorway, the first thing that Horse Thief Thompson says is, do your parents know you're here? <laughs> he says no. And then immediately they saddle up a horse to take him home. Breaking that tension in a really poignant way, it's obvious to, uh, to the reader in instantly that these are two grown-up adult men that are going to look out for him because he's a boy. Yeah. And so all of that unknown, all of that anxiety, all of that tension between us and them, you know, the the strangers, the the Indian, the the loner, whether they're safe or not, all of the anxiety of the unknown that goes into that situation is broken and disappears immediately. And that's why I think that the the resolution of this chapter happens so quickly because yeah. um, it, it underscores the idea that, that all of that tension evaporates in a moment. And it's really dramatic and really pleasing that the next thing you know, he wakes up in the morning and the horse is happily munching alfalfa, having been healed by the magic of two dogs. <laughs> and, and I think it's episodic. It fits into an episodic story, but it it underscores some of the things that all the other chapters underscore. I think maybe just in a different way, which is that there's a there's an ang- there's an anxiety involved in being young and growing up and not knowing what the future holds and not knowing about the world around you, and that anxiety is going to be um, is going to dissipate as the the process of growing up happens. And so it, this chapter is kind of a dramatic microcosm of what's going on in the story as a whole. I think. And then you're going to have kids and then the anxiety is going to come back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I like that you mentioned that they were adults, you know, two grown men adults because two grown up adults, I think is what you said, because I was thinking about how it's so obvious by the end of the chapter that he's a kid. He can't even stay awake for the ride home. And then he's passed on from one person to the next. You know, he's hugging his mom's shoulder and then his dad's there and his dad kisses him. So all of, you know, it's this, he, it's clear that he's nine years old or eight years old or whatever he is. Yeah. He yeah. thinks he's a grown up as he's on his way there trying to solve the problem. But you know, by the end of the chapter, he's sort of just accepted that he's not. Such a beautiful combination in, in little Ralph of, uh, incipient manhood, you know, that he's trying to become a grown up and then just, um, naive childhood. Uh, they he he does a really nice job. The author does of giving us both sides of really what is the beauty of a boy, right? That's kind of the beauty of boyhood is the 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 willingness to get on a horse and go up in the mountains in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and fall asleep in somebody's lap on the way home. Right. Mm. 
I agree with all of that. I really like that phrase that you use, the anxiety of the unknown. Um, And we've discussed before how much of this book is fictionalized, right? And I kind of don't care that much. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I love this chapter because there's so many... um, aspects of really good storytelling in it, whether or not it's something that truly happened in his childhood doesn't really matter. This is great storytelling. Uh, this idea that we've talked about before of kind of the, the unifying of, a, of several different narrative threads yeah. and genre threads and form threads. You've got like the, the going West into the mountains, the pioneering aspect, as well as, uh, as you know, you pointed out, Andrew, it's not necessarily a coming of age tale because he's not there yet, but it is definitely a childhood narrative of this young man on his journey to becoming a man yeah. and, uh, and learning all the things that he needs to know in terms of knowledge and skills and actions and character in order to become a man. And then also there's, uh, and that's very clear here in this little episode. Um, and then also along with that, uh, this kind of general, I think, commentary on the society um, that after all, in spite of all the dangers, the horse carried him into um, uh, the land and this new society that can be trusted, right? Mm-hmm. That there's something good about it. It's not all just danger as the mother, as his mother is afraid of, that these men, these grown-ups, are good. They took care of him in spite of the fact that it's an Indian who would have been looked upon with suspicion simply because of that in a horse thief. They are still taking care of this young man and returning him home Supposed um, in the harsh thief. land. Exactly, right? The question mark, Corsi. I don't want to slander him. <laughs> we don't know the whole story about him yet. But there's there's still this integration of society element to this little episode yeah. that I think would be easy to overlook, but it's pretty important. Mm. Adam, go ahead. No, uh, no I was just... Nodding in agreement. Okay. Well, and also, last thing is. Heidi wants to disagree with herself. I, no, I <laughs> um, Is I loved what Adam, I think it was Adam last week, brought up the orphan element, how this isn't an orphan tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, every good childhood story has to have at least one orphan episode, right? That's my kids play orphan all the time. Well, my, my son is 12, so he doesn't really play anymore, but my daughter still, she's 10 and right in the middle of everything that they play, they're orphans. Mm-hmm. because orphans have possibilities, right? They don't have boundaries. They don't have anyone mm-hmm. telling them no. Yeah. So they can go out into the dangerous world and make their own way. And so any good childhood story has to have at least one yeah. episode in yeah. which the child is thrown out into the scary world all alone and uh, must either be rescued by somebody trustworthy or learn to rise to the occasion. And this little episode has both of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mentioned last week that my friend Josh says that orphans are free to have adventures. Yes, why there's so and that was ones. you that brought that up, David. I'm sorry. Well, I don't know if it, I don't know if it was. Yeah. Um, the this book is uh, I re, I really I really have been enjoying it going through it again. Um, it reminds me this issue of um, little boys striking off into the wilderness and having mm-hmm. an adventure, and what and and how that's kind of an orphan uh, effect. Um, it reminds me of a of a book I read uh, when my kids were little called Bud and Me, The True Adventures of the Abernathy Boys. Have you guys heard of that book? Never heard of it. I don't think Tell so. us more. It is a, it's a story by um, a woman called Alta Abernathy, 
who tells the story of her husband and his brother when they were young. Huh. And it was it happened in 1909, between 1909 and 1913. They were five years old and nine years old, respectively. Wow. And their father put them on a horse and sent them off on a cross-country trip. No. Alone. alone. And boy. they... I'm like having an anxiety attack they right now. rode across the country on a horse, five-year-old and a nine-year-old, alone. Good heavens. And, they, and this woman, they're both dead by the time she writes this. I think she wrote it in the... <laughs> She wrote it in the. Uh, They're in both the late dead by the time the book ends. You mean? <laughs> no, 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 no. She, um, basically, one of their wives grew old and looked back on her this amazing experience that her husband had had and wrote a book about it, and it okay. became really famous. I mean, it's a, it's written at a, um, it's written at a, a grade school, junior high level, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, anyway, the the most astonishing thing about it is that in this world of 1909, this was a. This was a thing that a father contemplated and actually put in motion. And they tell amazing stories about, in particular, how strangers would take care of them. Huh. Strangers would see their situation and ask what they were doing. And they, told, they had, you know, this is, this is who my parents are and this is where we're going. And we're expected, you know, at this place at such and such a time. And strangers over and over again would take care of them and make sure they were fed and send them on their way and... In one instance, even, they were taken care of by horse thieves. Like, bad guys on the run from the law crossed their paths, took care of them, saw that they were fed and dressed and bathed and sent them on their way, and then proceeded to continue in their lawless deeds. <laughs> it's the well, there's most a code, story. man. There's a code. There's a code, right? You've been among <laughs> wow. horse thieves. Anyway, um, Bud and Me, The Adventures of the Abernathy Boys, I highly recommend it. But it reminds me of this story in, in, in the issue that we're talking about. Um, that I, I think that we, we tend to think the orphan is free to have adventures. Maybe that's a feature of this day and age where we keep closer tabs on our children, right? right. Yeah. Maybe back right. in Ralph Moody's day, um, everybody had adventures. And I, that, that makes me think that this, this chapter about two dog is... Um, is maybe more more factual than fanciful. Wow. Uh, my wife and I were talking recently about, well, just about, you know, what kind of things to let the boys do. And, you know, I don't know, long story. But basically, we got to talking about how um, when I was eight, nine, eight or nine, we moved from Wisconsin to Idaho. And we had some friends whose dad was a truck driver. And he came through, he had this route where he would go, you know, he'd get something from Wisconsin and take it to Washington State and then to pick up something in Washington State. I think it was cherries and apples and he'd go back and forth. So he'd go, he's going up through the Dakotas and Wyoming and Montana and Northern Idaho and so forth. And he came down to Boise and picked us up. And me and my brother were nine and eight or eight and seven or something like that. And he had a couple of kids and my parents just put us on that, you know, 18 wheeler with the big cab with him. And we spent 10 days in that cab riding across the top, you know, riding across the northern parts of the country. Wow. It took us 10 days to get from Boise to Green Bay, partly because he had to stop a couple of places and the shipments weren't ready. So he's, you know, I, I just remember he'd drive all night and during the day, we'd stop for a few hours at some truck stop and we would just get out and play in the truck stop, you know, and then <laughs> we'd talk to truckers and he'd be sleeping. And, and I was thinking, we were talking about how, it, this is the mid 90s, I guess, but in 2019, my my oldest is only a year or two away from how old I was then. Right. I'm trying to There's imagine no way in the world, right? 
Yeah, even with somebody that I knew, it's no just, way. It's it's a different world. Even twenty years ago, or however many years ago, I mean, yeah. twenty five years ago. And let alone Dream. let alone put them on a horse by themselves. I mean, they would fall off the horse, of course, but you know, <laughs> I know. if they knew how to ride a horse. <laughs> uh, and that's you know that the horse thing is interesting to me that they would do that because even here we you know this book there's so much in this book about the relationship between the boy and the horse. Right. Which is not, that's a common thing in lots of literature. The horse and his boy obviously comes to mind, but mm-hmm. there's this. There has to be this like symbiotic relationship because the boy can't control the horse. You know, a right. man maybe can can manhandle. Well, maybe not totally manhandle the horse, but it's strong enough to make the horse go where it wants it to go. But the horse and the and the boy have to have a relationship with the horse. Trust. Yeah, the horse right. has to trust and respect the boy in order to allow him to say, "Yeah, we're going here." And then the right. boy has to trust the horse that it's going to take him where he needs to go. And I was I was struck when reading this chapter that his adventure begins to flip. He be, it begins to um well, it begins to work out at that moment where he says, you know, he, he's heard the, uh, the howling mm-hmm. and, um, he said, he starts to think about his father and his mother and the rest of the youngsters at home. And he says, I wanted to turn Fanny and race out of the Canyon as fast as she could go. But when I looked down into the gorge, it was, um, as black as a well, Though I'd never heard a wolf's, wolf's howl before I had read about it and knew what must have, that must, that was what I must have heard goes on. And then it says, that settled it. I kicked my heels into Fanny's ribs and tried to cluck to her, but my mouth was so dry that I only made a hissing sound. I think that was the first time Fanny ever trusted my judgment more than her own. Huh. She gathered her muscles and tore up the rest of the grade as though the wolf had had her by the tail. We came onto the flat rock. And then right after that, he comes out of the clearing and then he yells for them and they come out. So I was struck by that moment. There seems to be a moment there that happens between them when they're both afraid. And they both, the horse and the boy, decide to trust one another. Mm. And and at that moment, the adventure starts to turn. And I don't know that, I don't know if he's, you know, Ralph Moody's trying to do that purposefully. It might have just been the way it really happened. But yeah. that, that the, the symbiosis or whatever you want to say there that happens is, is fascinating. That's mm. true. Mm. I don't have a question. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was interesting in the, the chapters that were, that we're uh, talking about today, the um, the instances of fighting that come up. Mm. Huh. Uh, there's there's a there's a fight in the chapter on haying mm-hmm. that um, between the men. The yeah, between yeah. the men, and it sets the stage for another fight in the the in chapter thirteen or fourteen, the irrigation fight. Yeah, right. that um, it put me in mind of of uh, that's something that I wanted to discuss with you guys and see what you thought of it. Um, you remember the in the haying chapter, there's a fight because one of the the hired hands that's from Denver has been hired into the neighborhood and is sort of a stranger on the scene, makes some sort of crude comment about one of the women that's there. And Ralph doesn't tell us what the comment is, but we can infer from the from the details some crude sexual comment. And then uh, and then he's challenged to a fight by. Mm-hmm one of the woman's friends, I think, or, or one of the people in the neighborhood. And I thought it was interesting that everybody gathers around and um, I, if, presumably to make sure the fight is civil or something, make sure they follow the rules or something yeah. like that. But nobody, <laughs> he says several times that nobody stops the fight. Yeah. Almost as if to say a fist yeah. fight is an appropriate right. way to handle this. Did you guys, did you guys get the, the sense that he was saying that? Yes, Absolutely. 
Well, and then at the what? end of it, they he pays off the guy who was running the operation, pays off the Denver guys, and they leave, yeah. and it's just kind of the end of it, you know? Right. He's like, so first of all, we're going to lick you, and secondly, you're done here. We're going to pay you off and send you home. Right. There's like yeah. a code of honor around it, right? You don't stop the right. fight. You don't step in and break it up. You let it happen, but it's clear when it's over. And then there's this kind of set way of handling it. So, yeah. Yeah. And there's a, there's a so, proper response when someone says something like that. Right. Is that one of the reasons that this, uh, that we like this book? I mean, is, is, is the fact that it's got that sort of code sort of written into mm. it that make it attractive? Well, I was going to ask why this book is so beloved. That was one of my questions I had. Yeah, written down, so. that's got to be some of it, right? That this, this, it's it's almost looking at the Western ethos through the eyes of an outsider. This child, I remember something that J.K. Rowling said about Harry Potter when she wrote the first book was, "I had to write the book as if Harry was a vessel." for this strange new world. Right. Mm. So in 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 the very fir- in the first couple of books, specifically in the first book in that series, Harry is a he's a, mo- a lot more passive than he is in the later books when he's a fully integrated member of that community. But so much of looking into the wizarding society is through the eyes of an outsider. And we can, as the reader can feel like we're behind those eyes. And then we feel like we're becoming integrated in through Harry as our vessel. Right. And I think in some ways that's what's happening here. Hmm. He's a young boy who's brought into this new society of which he has to become a functioning member worthy of a man's world. And we get to experience that integration along with him. Um, And so I, I think that that is a lot of the appeal of something like this, as well as just that's attractive, you know, the American, as we pointed out, just that's part of the American history. And we want to feel like we're part of that. Mm. I just realized I was just struck by the fact that we've been talking a lot about the colliding of civilization and the wilderness and they're kind of, you know, the, his mom's trying to bring in the civilization and trying to preserve that in their family. And he's kind of Mm -hmm. going against that. And I'm struck by the fact that the guys who are the, the lowbrow guys that cause the problems are actually from the city. And it's uh-huh. the people in, in the area, these, these right. few guys who like, this is their community. They have the code, like they handle it in the way you have to handle it there. But it's the, it's the city that brings in the, uh, brings in the problem in this right. particular. Well, that's interesting. Well, yeah. the, As the, happens the, with Denver. <laughs> yeah, that happens all the time. We're always judging people from Denver out here. <laughs> um, that, that fight scene in the, the chapter on haying, um, I, I said a minute ago, I think it sort of set the stage for the 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 next fight, the fight that happens yes. later in the chapter on irrigation. Yeah. And uh 14, two, chapter 14. Yeah, chapter 14. When when if I'm remembering all the details right, the, the guys in the neighborhood um are are they're getting their water stolen by people higher up them, higher up the creek, right? That they whose uh whose farms the water runs by first and it's a dry spell and the people first in line are taking more than their share mm-hmm. and um ralph's father who is this paragon of fatherly virtue 
mm-hmm. goes to Fred Altland and said, what are we, we going to do about this? Let's figure out how we could settle this in the court and bring suit and everything. And Fred Altland convinces him there's no way to do that. That's not going to work. Uh, it'll be futile. I think what we've got to do is fight the water through, uh-huh. by which he means punch people in the head right. and steal the water in order to keep the sluice gates open. He does mean and, that. And so then, and so then um, Ralph Moody's father, who is sick with tuberculosis, starts going out. Am I getting this right? He starts going out every yeah. night to participate in all night long fist fights with the bad guys so as to keep the sluice gates open and water his own fields, right? Occasionally there's a gun involved. And occasionally there's a gun. And at one point they say, when they're trying to figure out how to solve it, pretty soon someone's going to get killed. Yeah. Right. Yep. And yeah, they finally, is, they finally handle the, it. Once someone's dead, then it's gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> that's, it, that's it. Once someone's dead, it's gone too far. But there's this unspoken or even spoken understanding mm-hmm. that up until that point, this might be the best way to handle it. Right. It, and it, it, the fact that Ralph's father participates in this, tuberculosis though he is or whatever, yeah. um, sort of lends legitimacy to it. Sometimes you have to punch the bad guy in the head. I think it's really interesting that that's um, presented that way. And I wondered what your guys' reaction to it right. was. And it was similar to, to in the Haying chapter. Right. Just assumed that that is the way to resolve a conflict. Yeah. Right. And I got to thinking as I was, as I was reading it, um, Fred Alton might be right. I mean, in the end, father comes up with a, with a solution that everybody, that everybody praises, but not, not until he has, he has given as good as he's gotten in in a series of brawls. Right. And it seems like what they're basically saying is they're talking about justice. Like, how do we, how do we make sure that justice is served? And, and ultimately the resolution that he proposes is not, it's not the most just resolution. Right. Cause they're still going to get less than what they were promised. They're getting 80% of what they, you know, yeah. they're supposed to be getting, but it's, you know, they're, they're do they, to get the most justice they can. They have to do it this way. There has to be, you know, there has to be, um, a, a sort of conflict. And I, I was, again, I was struck by the mother in this, in this scenario because throughout the book, she's been criticizing Charlie, the father for the things that he lets, you know, lightly criticizing the things that he lets Ralph get involved in. Right. But then here she doesn't criticize him for doing the things that he's doing, but she sits, she sits nearby, you know, he talks about how she's nervously biting her lip. Mm-hmm. You know, and and he and Ralph has noticed that she's crying and and the, but then at the same time when he's wondering what's going on she's the one who you know she's not worried about it it'll be fine yeah. and then in the moment when they get when the men are having all the meeting at the house I was struck again the meeting ends when she walks into the room right you know he Charlie makes this proposal Ralph's father makes the proposal and everyone kind of argues about it just for long enough and then she enters the room at the right time for that, for that to be the proposal that they go with. So in right. some ways she's, she's constantly fighting against, you know, she's trying to fight. She herself is fighting against this way of sort of this, I guess this sort of Western justice that has, that that has to happen because there's no alternative, right? Right. Exactly. There's no recourse. It the really courts is. can't be trusted. Yeah. 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 I just think it's interesting that, that it's portrayed in such a positive light. Yes. Um, 
You know, I mean, it's not like the, the guys that are participating, um, Charlie convinces them all of his plan and they say, yeah, you're right. That, that probably will work and it does work. And they are, they're all glad that they don't have to, to fight the water, you know, down the Creek anymore. Right. There wasn't anything wrong with that first solution. Yeah. Only, yeah, nobody is saying this is ridiculous. Eventually, right? going to get somebody killed, and that's yeah. that would be bad. But it's working so far, right this minute. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that that's it is. And as as a woman and a mother, I I am one of those old fashioned people who just thinks, "Wow, guys are really different from girls." <laughs> as I'm I'm reading this, probably maybe a little differently even than you all are. I'm curious about that. So my first question is. Have you have either of you ever been in a fight? Have we ever? I was, yeah. I was in, in a fight. fight. Okay. fight. Yes, yeah, serious. It's like not something that girls do ever. Like ne- I've never in my life ever, ever, ever punched anybody. I, I'm well, sure there's not true. One time I hit my brother in the face, and my dad spanked me for it. Well, justice. that's the only time. So <laughs> I, I assume there are women out there listening that have been in fist fights before. I'm sure there um, are. But Adam, yes. so do you have a fist fight story to tell? Oh, not really. I punched a kid that was bugging or that was um, bullying me in junior high once and he didn't bully me anymore. Yeah. I mean, I mean, kind of like the, kind of like the Ralph Moody story to tell you yes. the truth. It wasn't as bloody as all that, but <laughs> yeah, David? that kid didn't keep coming. I got brothers, of course. Right. <laughs> Just the other day, in fact, um, <laughs> No, yeah, I, I mean, I was uh, smaller than everybody. I got in fistfights a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say they were like terrible, but you know, right. not when I was like in high school, but when I was younger, yeah. Right. Oh, I, I can, I can distinctively remember some in high school. Actually, now that I think about it, now this, it was, it was just, it was, um, it was noticeable, remarkable to me that I was, uh, we, Ralph Moody is setting up his father as, as a. Yeah. as a paragon, as an exemplar, right. uh, you know, like that. And so I'm sort of thinking about him in Atticus Finch terms by the time yeah. we're up to chapter 14. And then he's a, he's a brawler, just like everybody else. And I thought that was really... And, and his reputation doesn't suffer in, uh, at, in Ralph's eyes at all, or in ours as readers. Right. It's, it's or, an or, in the, right. or in the community. Right. right. Do, uh, do you think that that's... Um, I mean, are you... And you, you say you, you're kind of saying it like you're surprised. Do you, does, so I guess the question is, are, do you think that that's, um, I guess the real question is, would you do that? Um, no. <laughs> that's not the real question. <laughs> do, you, do you think that that's, um, from the perspective of the, not the, from the perspective of the author of Ralph Moody, not the boy Ralph Moody, do you get the sense that he's saying that this was the right approach? I mean, is that is kind that, of yeah yeah kind of yeah because because um, the hero of the story, Ralph's father, uh, was perfectly willing to take that to to take that road and to put that particular solution into play, and right. uh, did what was necessary. Yeah, I think he says at one point, son. Sometimes you have to do what's you do stuff you don't want to do in order to take care of your family, and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I do. I do think that the perspective of the story is to approve, right? Mm. That this is just a part of being growing up to be a man in a man's world. Is yeah, maybe. you learn to defend yourself uh, and what is yours, your family, your property, your rights through 
violent action if you have to. Sure. This is one of the reasons, though, why I was hoping for like a multi-chapter. This, huh. this story would have been multi-chapter because I think, you know, when you get into him going for two dog or this chapter on the irrigation, the irrigation in particular is something that feels like it had been built up. It had been referenced so many times. We knew yeah. it was coming. And then it's the one chapter and then, and it may come back again. But, um, you know, it's not vigilante justice, but it's certainly, you know, kind of Western justice. It's certainly not justice, right. you know, the way we think of it. It's certainly not justice through the courts, right? Um, so in some ways, I, I wish... I don't want to be overly critical, but my instinct is to want to have more consequences, you know, for that to, to, to have a better sense of, you know, what does it mean that these guys did that? I mean, maybe this isn't the novel for it, of course, but. Well, I think, I mean, not, I don't want to be a spoiler alert, but, but, um, the the issue is going to come up again. So so there was a little hint of it in the first couple of chapters, and then it breaks out into the open here in chapter fourteen, and then and it's not it's not settled yet. So he's right. got a there's an arc to this irrigation story that's really <clears throat> I think one of the one of the the cool underlying themes of the novel. Mm-hmm. Right, but I think that what you're saying, David, is valid in the sense of why not kind of a chunk that explores like multiple chapters in a row that explore one thing and then tying some of the threads in. And this does feel more episodic. And I'm wondering if part of that is because that's how our childhood memories are. You know, when we look back, we remember, you know, more in the nature of episodes rather than, you know, a unified (laughs) narrative thread in the development of something. Yeah, our our childhood memories don't work like within a a, uh, rigorously uh, cultivated narrative structure. (laughs) Right. Similar. I mean, and the way our adult memories do, like I remember kind of, I, I do remember narrative threads as an adult more than I do as a child. Like I think about the years of, of like my, the years when my kids were very little, the years as newlyweds, right? Those, the years when I worked yeah, we, at such a We marked the job, occasion, yeah. Right. Whereas my childhood memories are more like, you know... I did this, this time, and this, that yeah, time. And yeah. Then this, and then, of course, there is the narrative thread, but it, I remember it more in fragments than I do my adult seasons. Hmm. There is a structure to that, though. I mean, I, I'm mm. thinking of... Um, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a, a you know, a form of childhood recollection. And yeah, that's true. Very episodic, especially at first. Uh, each chapter is a new topic, a new subject, mm-hmm. a new, a new a vignette or a new scene. But right. then every once in a while, the issues that are going to form the stirring climax of the story get kind of dropped in uh, occasionally. And it and the frequency of those mentions or those occurrences of the big of the big events starts to increase hmm. until in the end the whole story is about the real crisis. I mean, I right. that's a cool structure. That's a cool uh, structure for a story and a novel. And I I sort of see Ralph Moody doing that here in the hmm. middle chapters of this one. Right. Do you think that? We I guess we could go over a lot of different coming of age novels, but do you think that? Um, that's something that is true of most of the best coming of age novels because those those topics or whatever in those early chapters not only allow you to set the stage for the scene or get to know the character, set the stage for the whole novel's conflict and get to know the characters, but they also um, allow you to uh, cover the various 
now this isn't the right word, but it's the one that pops into my head right now, the various lessons that children and young people are learning as they're kind of going through their coming of age. Sure. While, you know, being able to wrap it all up later. Is like is 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 like a building's Roman, for example, does it necessitated like does that necessitate that kind of form to do it right? Mm, I don't know if I'd go that far because I can think of I can think of coming of age stories that aren't quite as episodic as that. I'm uh, you know, like Great Expectations, for example, is way more coherent and it's it's a um it's kind of a blow by blow account of a single narrative arc. Mm-hmm. But um, but I certainly think that the episodic style does what you just said, and it's, it has has strengths there to set the stage for character development and that kind of thing. I definitely think it's a, a, an appropriate style for a building's Roman. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Did you want to add something that's there, true. Heidi? No, I think that's well said. Good job, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adam got in something smart, so I guess we're done for the day. Um, <laughs> Heck, I'm done for the week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is Friday. Um, Well, okay. So we have, let's see, we've got this irrigation fight and then the, the, um, we've got the, I give Mr. Lake a ride where he puts the burr on the saddle of the, uh, the man at the school. And one of the things I love about coming of age stories pre 1950 is the way they treat education. So you look at schooling in Little House in the Prairie, schooling in Farmer Boy, schooling in Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, right. and, and schooling here. Like there's this sort of, uh, I don't want to say disdain, but there is definitely an ambivalence about. Yeah, I think disdain is appropriate. <laughs> so the guy that the, the the head of the school board, he comes out. He's kind of a jerk. He's kind of mean to the teacher. It's the students, I do love that all the students stand up for their teacher, including Grace. She has to then stand in the corner for a while, and. Uh, Ralph goes out and puts the burr under the saddle. And when the, when he sits on the saddle, the donkey kicks him off. And, um, so I, I'm, do, is this just another example of that sort of conflict between civilization and I don't know the on the other side, but the, yeah, West, the West sort of coming yes. into conflict with the each pioneering other. Pioneering spirits. Yeah. The, the yep. not being tenable. I mean, is that, is we keep getting these, these two things running into each other, whether it's justice in the, you know, Western cowboy justice, we'll call it. And, and the courts, whether it's um, the way that, you know, the way his mom wants him to dress and, and the, and the necessity for overalls, um, whether it's schooling and, and, you know, the board member coming in, all these different things keep coming in contact with each other. They keep clashing here in this town on the, you know, wherever, whatever the town is called. So is that the point though, that these things cannot coexist together? Is one, so one at a time after another, we find them not coexisting. Go ahead, Adam. You're talking about in this case, education and the, and the civilization that they're living in. I don't, I guess I don't mean it to be that specific. I mean, I'm, my point is just that we keep having this recurring theme of civilization and wilderness right. coming in conflict with each, con- conflict with each other. And, the ability to coexist within both of them is very fraught. You know, I know right. you can't have wilderness and civilization operating at ma- at peak wilderness and peak civilization at the same time in the same place, but right. it's very fraught the experience that they're all having within that. And right. does it feel like is the idea that you have to choose one or the other? Hmm. I don't know. Well, that's interesting. I, I think. think that, go, oh, ahead. go ahead, Heidi. No, no. Well, I think some of it. And this may be my own, I may be imposing my own value of education upon this, but I think some of it is the inadequacy of the old way 
to encounter the particular challenges of a particular place. Um, the old way of what? Sorry, just to clarify. Of educating. Mm. Yeah, that kind of that. Um, sit in a schoolhouse, learn stuff you're never going to use on the ranch. You know, that why is any book learning necessary here? Um, all I really need to know is how to ride my horse. And clearly this is, you know, this education is going to fall off the back of the horse, right? So I think yeah. some of it I look at as, you know, less an indictment of education itself because I think of the tenderness in the way he speaks of his mother's reading. So it mm. it is so clear that he mm. loved that experience as a child and that he paid attention to it um when she and like that's the the way he speaks about that experience of his mother reading to their family is just really sweet and precious and clearly something he valued. Um, but at the same time, he's lured away from that by the horse. So um, he intentionally leaves that experience to go ride. So maybe yeah, that's kind of yeah. what I'm getting at. It seems like the... The wilderness know, his, is winning. His the wilderness, heart, at least. Yeah, yeah. There's this, the wilderness is calling, right? Yeah. And, can he, and I must go. Yeah. I mean, I think we all feel that too, right? There's, there's times when it feels like, you know, we love two things, right? Like, right. you know, I, I, I thought about the, this was a big thing for me when I was in school because I was playing sports and I was hanging out. I was on playing football and basketball and I was in that world. But then I also loved literature and poetry and movies and was in... and was in theater right. and like loved both of those two things. And it there right. was sort of like, I felt... It, how how you coexist in two different worlds is a very, you know, universal human um, challenging thing, you know, and especially for young people, I think, as you're trying to figure out which world do I most belong in? So does he most, he's probably feeling that pull, like, do I belong in the world of that my mom loves? You know, the world right. of the poetry and the nice suits and, you know, or do I belong in the world of, you know, dust and and corrals and, you know, that's an interesting feature in just in American history of a civilization that is pushing out its frontier. There's always at every point in, well, especially in the 19th century in America, there's always a, um, a foundation back East where cultural, social, educational institutions yeah. are established and functioning and doing the things that they can do because of the leisure that is afforded by an right. advanced, relatively advanced civilization. Right. But yeah. that civilization is pushing West all the time in the 19th century and pushing yeah. out its frontier. Yeah. And so the vanguard of that civilization is out in the sticks. And they come from the East. And so they have the cultural institutional assumptions of the East in their back pockets, so to speak. And their instinct is to try and set them up here. In fact, the whole purpose of the enterprise is to try and set those institutions up in the West, out at the frontier. Right. But there's always a there's always a gap, there's a lag between yeah. the level of development that they assume from back east and the level of development that's possible in a essentially a subsistence type um culture, which is what the frontier always is. And that that's yeah. probably a source of a lot of that tension. We're talking about farmers and ranchers who need their children to mm. get on with the haying and yeah. can't afford them uh can't afford for them yet anyway. 
to yeah. be sitting in school learning from books. That's 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 a generation yeah. down the road, maybe. And it's ironic too because we're a country who it, our mythology is that wilderness, right? So right. We're, we're as we move our as we grow and become more of a country, and the civilization moves further west, we're we're like clinging to these this this mythology of the west that we're pushing out. Like we're right. the more we cling, the more we were clinging to that mythology the more we were pushing it away. You even think of like the, 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 as the railroad goes, the railroad's going, bringing civilization. And at the same time, you know, it's the Buffalo thing. The hunters are on, they're on the, they're on the train that's bringing civilization East and they're, they're destroying the things that they talk about in all their tales. Right. And, and that made us, the, yes. that kind of created the American spirit. We talk about the American spirit and the American spirit is both loving the wilderness and getting rid of it at the same time. It's, it's kind of a, mm -hmm. it's almost incoherent in some ways. Yep. Right. Maybe ironic is enough of a word. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's definitely an irony for sure. Right. A tragic one in a lot of cases, but that isn't really explored in this novel necessarily. Mm -mm. So far, at least. At least not yet. Right. It does, it does right. take me back, though, to what I think I said this in the first episode, that, that Colorado is at that point, it's at such a key point in the trajectory of the evolution of the West. Because it's not, you're not, you're not all the way, you're not over right. the Rockies yet. But, you know, you're also not in the East anymore. And so it's, right. you know, it's appropriate that I think the story takes place, a, a story like this takes place there. Right. Well, in Colorado is a very dramatic landscape even visually it's harsh so we live right we live in the forest that's between the mountains and the prairie so if you look east it's flat like as far as you can see and if you look west it's just mountains and i think all the time of what that must have been like to come from the east and then encounter this ridge of impossible mountains yeah. and they're just yeah. so beautiful but I mean, even driving over them is treacherous. I'm imagining, you know, that's like where the Dahmer party died. Like it's it's a very dramatic place. And to come to the base of that like and live there. I mean, I we we use the word liminal. It is a very it's a very liminal existence because you're still out in the wilderness, but there's this ridge of mountains that is kind of the entrance of discovery of manifest destiny. So mm. uh, there you've kind of reached as far as you can go unless you're willing to risk your life. Mm -hmm. So that is, I think in the idea of the, the things matter, like incarnations of things matter. Like that's, I'm imagining what it would have been like to live at the base of the Rockies in that time in history in which you can't go back to the East and yet you can't really go forward West without kind of taking your life in your hands and you're trying to build yeah. a society there. That's I'm, shaping to, psycho to the psychological ethos of the place. I remember as a kid driving from Idaho to Wisconsin and going through all these mountain ranges out there and how you get to the bottom of them and you just start, kind of start climbing. Whereas you see them in the distance and you get closer and closer. It really does feel like there needs to be swelling music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it feels like you're about, even in a car in 2019, well, I don't know, 1999 or whatever it was, even in a car then with air conditioning and radio and all that, you, you, were, you were doing something dramatic. You were taking some sort of a risk in your hands. And I remember driving over, even now driving, it feels like you're looking down, you know, 
thousands and thousands of feet. So um, I can't right. imagine it being 1888 or whatever, trying to get out to where Adam lives. <laughs> you have to, if you leave Heidi's house and go west, there's nothing but mountains between her house and mine. Yeah. That's right. It's just one long, you know, death defying trip. <laughs> Good thing we got airplanes, huh? <laughs> and cars. I, and now the I reason think, people go to the mountains is to ski. I think that's yeah. funny too. Like, yeah. you know, we go to cabins or we go skiing or whatever. It's not the same anymore. And that's less, you know, that's just a hundred years ago, which isn't really very long. No, it's not. It's not. Yeah. Anyway, Adam, you were going to say something. I was going to say that the this question of that you're sort of alluding to of whether or not you can survive and whether you can make it and whether you can establish a civilization or a community or a home um, is it's part of the American Western right. experience. Mm-hmm. And that's the underlying question of all settlers and all all pushers west, right? And right. I think that we do well to dwell on that theme in discussing this book because really it's the underlying question of, of little britches is right. whether or not we're going to make it. Whether can, or we not, make yeah. it? can we make it stick? Can we, right. can we stick here? Right. Right. Which goes then to David's question about education. Right. And that I think is maybe everything about the modern utilitarian approach, at least in America, has got to be influenced by this Western ethos, right? This idea that, Mm. like, really, 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 truly, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but really, what can a country schoolhouse teach me that, like, isn't it really more useful for me to learn haying and riding horses and fixing covered wagon wheels and planting, right? Like, honestly... In terms of what is required in order to, as Adam puts it, to make it here, then is education in a country schoolhouse, when I'm learning the times tables, is that equal to the task of what is before me in building this nation? And then on the personal level, building my family, right? That, that's actually a real question, a lot different than it is now. It's different. Yeah, I agree. Yep, yeah. I agree. Since we don't live in a frontier society anymore. Right. It makes me so the immediate my immediate thought to that is probably it's not as valuable, but then there is still the question that his mom is consumed with. Um that yeah. that you know, what's it gonna you know, maybe right now it helps me survive. Maybe it help maybe just the kind of knowledge that you were talking about there helps horse Steve Thompson survive or these men who right. are fighting for their water. Maybe it helps that generation survive. But if you want to have a real place that's going to last that you can preserve, then you do need some of those things if you're going to actually create a, you know, a civilization that's going to be there for longer than you know one generation until they go on. Right. People there move on right. and go find the next thing. Right. But, because surviving and the good life are two different things. Just basic survival versus living in a society worth living in. Two different questions. Well, and what you're talking about here, it, it brings me to the to the very end of what we read for this week at the end of that chapter, A Good Month with No School. And I actually think I'd like to read this because there's, I, I think there's a lot of pathos in this. Adam, could you read the last three chapters of that chapter for us? The last three paragraphs, you mean? Last three paragraphs. What did I say? You said chapters. chapters. The last three paragraphs of a good month with no school. So starting with, we scooped out a hole. Oh, sure. We scooped out a hole nearly as big as our kitchen. 
While father dug the corners out square with a pick and shovel, I peeled bark off the poles with his draw knife. It took five days to build the cellar. After the hole was dug, we cribbed the walls up with poles like a log house. We made the end walls half round at the tops and then laid poles across to make the roof. Grace and I stuffed all the cracks on the outsides of the walls and roof with straw while father made the door and the steps. Then we hitched up the horses and with the scraper at the end of a long rope, filled dirt in tight around the sides and over the roof till it looked like a little hill with a trap door in it. The next week I peeled poles while father built them into a corral. It was a good one with a six-pole fence five feet high. Father set a big high post for the gate to swing on. Then he made the gate out of slim poles with the butt ends toward the hinges and a guy wire running from the top of the post to the lighter end of the gate so it could never sag. While we were building it, I got thinking how lonesome our little house had looked to me sitting out there on the prairie when I'd first seen it from the hill by Fort Logan. When the last nail was driven and the hasp was put on the gate, I got father to let me put Nig in the new colt and our two cows in the corral. Then he let me take Fanny and ride up to that hill again so I could look at our place and see how much it looked like a real ranch now. I really like this because in some ways, the matter of perspective, I mean, his use of this this child's perspective is really nice because, you know, the child bit by bit through the story is taking so much pride in things that they're doing. You know, whether it's he he gets to work with his father and then they he gets his money included in the check, you know. Um, but here he gets to go up, he gets to ride up to the hill and see what they're building. Um, to see that, you know, they started to see what they started with and to realize that what they're doing is making, I, I'm going to say this, that this is a cliche, but making a difference, you know, the work that they're doing is actually building something. And mm-hmm. even at nine years old or whatever it is, he's beginning to, you know, he's beginning to see the fruits of their labor, you know, and I think that that's, um, as much as days have they've endured and, you know, those moments, especially for children, for all of us are, are, are so, uh, profound and the things that keep us going, right? When we can look and see that the work that we've been doing is meaningful, whether mm-hmm. to somebody else or in terms of just surviving. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and also it's a step in the direction of answering the question, are they going to make it? Mm-hmm. Are they going to stick? When, you're, when you dig a cellar and you put a more or less permanent structure up, then maybe that, that's heading towards a yes answer. Right. right. And I love how that doesn't really answer the question completely yet. Mm-hmm. But it's it's an element of the the rising action of this story. It looks like they might gonna make it. We'll see yeah. about right. the water. We'll see about the other stuff. Well, in the paragraph before what you read, Adam, you see how much Ralph is actually contributing to that, right? Can I read that? Yeah, yeah. Father explained to me before we started, and I was so afraid I might do something wrong and get him badly hurt that my hands were shaking when I reached out to take the lines. He wouldn't let me take hold of them then. He said I'd have to stop a little while and get my mind straightened out because a horse could tell through the feel of the reins if the person driving him was afraid. Then he told me I had already proved I could make a horse do what I wanted it to. So there was no reason to be afraid now. It made me proud to hear him say that. And when I reached out for the lines again, my hands were steady. I wrapped the reins around them and called, get up. 
with my voice as deep in my throat as I could make it go. <laughs> That's cute. That's like a formative moment, right? When you're a, a, a child, a, a little boy, and you realize I can do this thing and it's not, it's actually something real that matters to what my family is building and who mm-hmm. my dad is telling me that I can be. Mm-hmm. That that's a big deal. And and it takes us back to the earlier moment, right? When when he has that moment with the horse. Right. His, his dad points out to him, you've already done you've already done you already have a relationship with these horses. You're you're already a pretty good horse horseman. Right. Trust, you know, trust what you know, trust yourself, trust what you're doing, trust the horse and you'll be okay. And the and the father basically, you know, says, I'm putting my safety in your hands because it says, you know, there that right before that that if he doesn't do what he's supposed to do, Right, uh, they could run him over or whatever. So right. even the father there is trusting him, and so the, not only do the boy and the horse have this moment where they trust each other, but the father is saying, "I trust you." You know, I trust you with my life right now, with my health. Yeah. Right. I think that's so important. And Adam, you mentioned earlier that you're glad we live at a time with modern conveniences and don't live during this time. I heartily agree with that. I just think, I sometimes I read about these pioneer women, and forgive me, mothers who want to do this with your life. Like I literally feel like Ma in Little House on the Prairie's life is a living hell. So I'm so glad. But I I also look at this and I think I remember, I vividly remember when I was first homeschooling my kids and my friend Emily said to me um, that she had, she realized that she didn't need her kids for anything. And I, and I've, that's like haunted me ever since she said that years ago. The idea that we don't need our children, that but there was a time in our history when people had lots of kids because they literally needed them to mm-hmm. do work. Like here, right? They need Ralph. He must contribute to this family in order for it to become this become a ranch. And so, and I, and I don't need my kids for the chore, like for our survival as a family. And so back in this time, I think that's part, also part of why this book is so beloved. This idea of a family drawing together to do something real in the world and to build something that, that, that it isn't that this young man is becoming um, a man because he, parents want him to, it's because he has to. He must mm-hmm. in order for them to do, as you said, can we make it? Yes, we can. If Ralph will actually help. Right. And I, and I, and we don't, that's something new in our history that the generations recent in which, you know, we don't need them to do stuff around the house and around our property and for our mm-hmm. land and all that. And so I, I don't know, I look at this and I think that's, that's part of why this book is so beloved and why people keep reading these pioneering stories from our history is we want to reconnect with that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that um, it, it, I'm fascinated by that idea that in, in creating civilization over the last hundred years, we've made our children almost obsolete, right? They don't matter until they're old enough to, to, to get jobs. But this is like the first... That's so sad. The first civilization in history, right? Yes. Been, it wasn't like in Florence in the Renaissance times when there was civilization, their kids were, not, were unnecessary. Right. So... Right. I've never thought... I don't think I've ever thought about that before. I've thought in terms of like 
it, it's important to give our kids things that make them feel right. Like they're, they're like doing we something. We have to make them feel important. Like I have to make my kids like, well, I better teach Lucy how to do the dishes so she feels like she's contributing, right? Like so, but yeah, or it's more like, I mean, there is there is some value in just like making them learn to do things so that they become self sufficient, honorable. Right you know, good people. Um, but that's a different, that's kind of a different question. Right. Here, there's, here's an idea that'll blow all your minds. Work is a curse. Yeah. Work is the curse. So we should all dearly hope to live in a civilization someday where nobody has to work. This would okay. be great. Now tell okay, me what so, that has to do with what we're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what we're saying is, isn't it sad that our kids aren't slaving away on a farm somewhere? I would say, no, that's not sad. That's happy. Or at least, yeah. or at least suggest it. That, that, that the, no, the, the, need but, to, the need to work like Ralph has to do is a function of his society and his civilization not being established yet. So, but hold on. Work is a curse. I don't know. When <laughs> God, so when God put That sounds Adam, like something somebody says very strongly in a very specific way just to get a specific response. Right, I agree, I agree. <laughs> so, but when God put Adam in the garden before the curse, before the fall, he says, I put the man in the garden to work it and to care for it. But the curse says that the, the ground there. is cursed because the land is cursed. And the curse is that man will, this is to your point, that man will be forced to work in some ways for nothing, to toil. Hold on, I'm trying to think of the exact word. Do you remember from Genesis 2? I'm looking it up right now. Toil is the curse. Yes. So hard work is a curse. <laughs> I, love, I love this philosophy of life I'm propounding right now. <laughs> I as know. I sit in my soft chair. Yeah, yeah. God so, bless seven day to he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground. Da, 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 there he put the man whom he had formed to work it and to care for it. But so work is not the curse. As you said, Adam, toil is the curse. What do you think? certainly toil in this the book. Fact that, the fact that Ralph learns great lessons and has great experiences while working and doing something besides reading about ideas, for example, <laughs> doesn't mean that those things are better. Sure. Okay. About ideas. But wouldn't you say, in this fake argument that you're making, that... Um, What's happening? You know, I brought this last chapter up because it's it's this last paragraph up because it's um it's showing the effect in his personhood of the work. It's not just that he is learning these great lessons, but it's cultivating in him. You know, um, he's he's taking he's in some ways is I mean to use a modern term, it's building like he's building self esteem. He's becoming through this work, he's becoming more human. So on the one hand, yes, it's a curse that he has to do all this kind of thing. And it doesn't make... I'm not, I wouldn't suggest that his work is perhaps inherently better or worse than the work that comes with you sitting around all day reading, reading books or whatever, or me, uh, or whatever. But, but both of those jobs, both of those work, both of those activities can cultivate more humanness in people, even as it's maybe not desirable to do them, right? 
I'm not sure I understand. Say it one more time. I don't know if I know what I'm talking about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm trying to, but of course I might be trying to respond to something. I don't know what you're saying, but you know, the it's the, there's the value. You mentioned that the, you know, he's learning all these lessons, but he's, it's more than he's learning lessons. He's becoming more human through the work. So he's in a, I mean, I don't know that, I don't know that the book is inherently saying that ranch work is inherently better than studious work. Would you say that the, is it, I mean, is that what, do you think that's what the book is saying? I don't. Okay. No, I, I don't think so. I think, I think what he's, what he's talking about is how, the things he learned about being a man through his right. experiences. But the, but the fact that his experiences, and we were, we were all talking about the fact that his, in total, his experiences are much different than the experiences of modern children. Yeah, right. Right. And, and I, what I would say is that the fact that those experiences are different isn't necessarily to say that one is better than the other. Right. Because one of the reasons he had to work so hard is that the civilization he was trying to establish hadn't been established yet. Right. And this isn't a good thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. Might even be a bad thing. Maybe it's better to have your civilization established already, <laughs> or at least, or at least there's good and bad to both, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. So Absolutely. you're saying don't I, you're saying don't romanticize the uh, wilderness. Exactly. I think I think we and and in a book that's as well written as this one, and that's as as pleasant and um, that scratches all, all of the itches that we have about you know about family and about responsibility and about character and all that yeah. stuff. Um, a, a book that presents those things as as eloquently as this one does, I think we potentially run a risk of romanticizing the period yeah. in which it came. Well, I think the that from which it came. Sorry, sorry. That's all. Well, I think that's why this book. That's why it's important that this book is at the intersection of the vast wilderness and the civilization behind it. It's about mm. it's about those two things clashing and figuring out how does both how does how do you coexist at that gap where the civilization is not established, but the wilderness is not taking, it's not as wild as it was, you know? So you have questions of justice arising, whereas in a pure wilderness, questions of justice aren't relevant. At least they're very different. Um, You have questions of education, you know, those questions are very different in a pure wilderness. And so it's the intersection of those two things. And it's, it's about how does civilization get carved out? Uh, Yeah. Maybe it is better to have your civilization be, uh, to be, to be um, already, you know, created. But it's not, it's not judging. It's not saying that civilization is bad inherently. And it's not saying that the wilderness is bad, but it's what happens when those two things collide. And when there's people, and there's people stuck in that place where they do collide. Right. Right. Go ahead, Heidi. Well, I'm just wondering if the book does, you know, if we're going to stay within the world of the novel, is the book romanticizing that lifestyle? It's a good question. That's a good question. There's probably a sense in which any any um, fond remembrance of childhood, right? Any story like this does a little bit of that, right? Especially if childhood was a happy one. Right. That's such a tricky question too, because to get at to answer it, we have to wade through our own preconceived notions of right. childhood, ex- our own experiences of childhood, how we feel about the Wild West personally. Like right. me and Adam might have very different perspectives from childhood about how much we like the Wild West. So right. start thinking about the inherent, uh, to the, the, values, the, the values that are inherent 
to the book is such a tricky right. thing. Um, I mean, we could probably learn more about Ralph uh, Moody and, and get a sense of what he thought. But man, that's a, that's a tricky thing to right. set aside our own preconceived notions and experiences. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think a lot of educators, especially homeschool moms, will read this book to their kids, to their boys specifically, because there's a necessity to contribute to meaningful work that they may not feel that they have an opportunity to cultivate in their own homes, kind of give their boys a value of that. And, um, and, and in some sense, in order to, as you're pointing out, Adam, idealize it on purpose, right? To romanticize or idealize that because of the meaningful work that these boys had to contribute to because they had to rise to the occasion because they have these experiences that modern children don't have. And so um, in spite of the fact that there were major flaws to this kind of a lifestyle, they're not necessarily addressed or explored in this novel. They're just kind of but it does teach this value of work and what it means to become a man and to contribute to a family uh, in a way that our modern society doesn't really offer those same opportunities. And so, I, I don't know. What do you guys... Do you guys think that there's value in that? In that even using, it, is, using yeah, it for that purpose? Yeah. Even if it is overly idealized or romanticized, even if we accept that, is there yeah. a value to that is my question for you too. Adam? If the question is, is there value in using a book like this as a child training tool mm-hmm. to extol the benefits of working to build character and that sort of thing, um, because those opportunities are missing in our in our advanced civilization, <laughs> uh, I, I would be. I mean, I think there's there's a danger potentially in that. Hmm. I mean, I think the danger of, of romanticizing a, an imagined past, um, there, I think there's a lot of dangers in that, but one of them is that we, that we um, don't live in the world that we've been put in. Huh. And there must, be, there must be the opportunity to grow into a man of character in this technology-laden sedentary age because things like character still exist in this day and age. Right. And this is the day and age that we are actually called to, to work in and to live in and to become in. And so I don't know that it's, that it's um, completely be beside the point of you know, raising a young man of, mm-hmm. of moral character and virtue by having him read Ralph Moody's book and talking about the lessons that young Ralph yeah, learned yeah. and how those might apply to today. But that's not the same thing as saying, Oh, for a time when we could give them real work and teach them character. Right. Now they sit in their dark room eating Cheetos and we don't really even need them. Oh, <laughs> woe is us. I think probably finding out how to uh, encourage character and manhood in this day and age is, is more what our job is as parents, mm-hmm. certainly. Huh. That's why anyway, I think my two cents. Right. Well, one of I mean, this takes this takes us back to the article you wrote about Gatsby for us. That what's the Cicero line? Oh, oh, tempore. Oh, tempore. Oh, mores. Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we always think the the age before every generation thinks that the previous right. age was was better than theirs. Right. A little more right. virtuous. Um, but there, one of the great things about literature, not, I mean, I don't. One of the great things about literature is that you can get things out of it, even if you're not reading it from a utilitarian perspective. Right. <laughs> even if you're not trying to 
you know, get a lesson out of it. And our kids tend to probably learn more lessons from literature that we don't point out to them anyway. Right. Um, I would, I would, I would guess, I don't know that I have a scientific, um, and I'm prepared to make a scientific thesis about that, but right. Adam, Adam, you might be willing to. I, I certainly think that when we read uh, about Charlie, when we read about Ralph's dad, we, we love him. And the more we understand about who he is and what he's doing with our heads, the more we love him with our hearts. Mm. And, and we love, we identify with Ralph at the child who looks up yeah. to his father. And the, the relationships that the author is drawing here are compelling to us. And they're compelling to us not because they happen in the American West. Right. They're compelling to us because they're universally applicable. Mm. Right. And that if in, in relationships like the one that Ralph has with Charlie, were they to happen in a dark room with a television set and a bowl of Cheetos, they would be as compelling. Right. And I think it's the universal nature of those relationships that gives the novel its, its power. Right. Go ahead, Heidi. Well, I, I think that's really encouraging, Adam, to hear you say that because... She, cause she's uh, tired of reading about these old, all these old <laughs> civilizations. Well, I think because of what, what, what I hear you saying is that we don't have to go back to some romanticized time and try to recreate it in our homes. Uh, but instead, we live fully in the season and the time in which we are. And I think that's a really important message for the mom sitting at home trying to pick out exactly the right books to train their kids to be exactly the person they want them to be that these right. are these are not textbooks um uh and they're not it doesn't mean that we have to go out and 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 try to figure out how to make our home into the old west in order to have young men with character and i, right. I think that's super important so i'm really glad you're saying that this is a story enjoy the story for its own sake don't treat it as some kind of moral lesson and how a society is supposed to be yeah i think that's really true i really do think that's exactly what we ought to do with a book like this is enjoy right. it for the the novel that it is but uh to remember that um you know, everybody has said on the question of civilized versus uncivilized, everybody has said who has talked about education and talked about culture and civilization, the highest point of civilization is when everyone has leisure right, to think and traffic in ideas. Right. And not get beat up in the middle of the night. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Major progress <laughs> that we don't have to fight the water down through the sluice gate in the middle right. of the night. You know, major <laughs> progress actually that we don't have to ride horses. Right. Mm. Right. Which so, doesn't change the fact that our society is in some ways hurting for meaningful work. And we do have a generation of lost boys in some ways. And so something like this can provide an anchor point, but isn't necessarily something that we have to imitate in order to have. Yeah. Which, that's well, what when I would we, say. When I we romanticize. Really well, well said. When we romanticize something, we're saying that they have all the answers to all our problems. Exactly. And so we can identify the problems we have, but that doesn't mean that they didn't also have the same problems even though the, maybe the particular book that we're reading suggests that they, I mean, right. it doesn't, that doesn't mean that they can solve every, every problem. Which is why the mom is so important as a character in the novel, mm. because she's the one saying there's something wrong here. I don't want my boys just getting in fights at school and never reading books. And right. So I, I think that that's, such an important point that she provides is like the counterpoint, the one who's actually still a little worried about her kids. 
She's not mm-hmm. romanticizing this society. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Adam, you said something a minute ago that I do want to, I don't necessarily want to push back on, but I want to ask you about before we go here. Oh. So you mentioned that it's not, you know, the stories aren't, com- you said the stories are compelling because they're universal, not because they take place in the old West. But, you know, don't we read genre fiction? Don't we love some of these stories because they take place in a different place than ours? Like we do find them compelling. You know, I, I find spy fiction or crime fiction or Western fiction like you compelling, probably at least in part because of the world that it takes place in. Right. So can you clarify a little bit what you meant there? Because in some ways, maybe it, maybe what, well, yeah, I can can just ask you to clarify that. Yeah, I agree uh, with that request for clarification. Um, I I wouldn't want to say too much by saying it's compelling because of the universal relationships, not because of its particular setting. Right. Um, We're sort of talking about using a book like this as a as a parenting tool, as a tool of culture. Oh, right, right, right. In order to pass on, in order to pass on ideas about family and life and manhood and character to the reader, to our children. And uh, that's kind of what I meant. In that connection, it's the universal nature of right, a father okay. who's a man of character passing on his worldview to his son who looks up to his father and they have a relationship that we want to emulate. Yeah, but yeah, I was yeah. saying that the fact that they do that on horseback ought not to figure into our, um, our use of the idea. Hmm, hmm. That could be done with video game controllers in your hand just <laughs> as easily is what I'm saying. But obviously, genre fiction is compelling because of the genre, right? Yes. Westerns are compelling because of the horseback. So I totally agree with you. And, and of course, the best examples of that are the things that are deeply rooted in the imaginative world, you know, imaginative to varying, to varying degrees of the genre, but also speaking to the universal things that you're talking about. Yeah, when they yeah. can do both, that's where it's the most compelling. Heidi, go ahead. I agree. Oh, you're just listening. I look like you were yeah. about to say something. No. Well, we, we should probably wrap up. So I'll, I'll ask for final thoughts. Adam, final thoughts first from you. Oh, no. I'm not talking anymore. I'm done. <laughs> Heidi? Um, I really want to have a very wise final thought, but I'm just really mulling over this question of the, uh, the teaching tool and thinking on that. I think because so many... So many mothers feel that anxiety. Which book should I read to train my kids to become the person I want them to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And um, and so I guess my final thought is it isn't that little britches is going to be the answer to that, right? Or any book we read, but just just let it be a compelling story and enjoy it. And they take from it what they do. Huh. Um and well, yeah. I always think that great great books don't change our lives because of one great book being great, but it's because of that ongoing conversation that all the great books have together that we get to participate in when we read them, when we talk about them. It's not that I'm going to read, I'm going to have my kid read the Lord of the Rings and he's going to be brave enough to go do things like what Frodo did because he read Lord of the Rings. It's It's the whole conversation. It's the whole life that comes from reading all these books together and having conversations about them and being in those worlds. It's not the, you know, it's not the... 12,000 pages of Anna Karenina that changes my life. <laughs> right. Right. That's a good point. Okay. Yeah. You sure you don't want to say anything, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> Been flapping my gums for an hour and a half. <laughs> well, thank you for doing so. I appreciate it. Heidi, Adam, thanks again. Thanks so much. Um, Adam, it's centerforlit.com, right? 
That's right. And it's and what are the two podcasts that people should subscribe to? A Bibliophiles and Radio Read Along. And those are both available on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever people can get podcasts, right? Correct. All right, great. And, and thanks Heidi, for mentioning. Of course, yeah. And Heidi's got her webinar coming up, so make sure you head over to the website and uh, register for that. She's talking about King Arthur, as, as you know. So don't forget that uh, if you like this episode, we would appreciate that you would let the world know in the form, you know, the very inconspicuous form of the starred review or the written review. And of course, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast and yet you're listening to this episode, then I'm very confused about the way you live your life and the way you consume media. And I would appreciate (laughs) it if you would go click that little purple subscribe button and make sure that it pops up on your phone every time we get a new episode. Uh, Don't forget about the Daily Poem, The Place to Sing, and Libromania. Coming up later today, I'm posting an episode, an interview that I did with Jessica Wilson, where we discussed... Dostoevsky's gambling problem and how that influenced his work. Um, so that was very interesting conversation, and that's coming up later uh, today. By the time this episode is our, is on iTunes, you'll have hopefully already had that in your feeds. But lots of great stuff going on on the uh, Center for Lit Podcast Network, of course, and then also on all the podcasts here at Cersei. So thanks for checking those out. Thanks for subscribing. Like I said, leave all the reviews, all the star reviews. Let's go over to Center for Lit's feed, leave a five star review right now. Before you leave your podcast <laughs> app, go leave that five star review for Center for Lit's podcast. Uh, with that, for Adam Andrews and for Heidi White, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. <laughs>